Shalom everyone, I'm Monty Judah with Lion and Lamb Ministries. Welcome to our weekly Torah study. This year as we go through the cycle, the annual cycle, we are emphasizing how the Torah is for all people. We are in the midst of the book of Leviticus, Vayikra, and most Christians, if I were to talk to them, would say, boy, Leviticus doesn't have much to do with me. But as we're finding out, it has a lot to do with us and our faith in the Messiah. And so I want to take you now to our weekly portion. This week, we are in Leviticus chapter 9. And in the Hebrew, we entitle this portion Shemini. Shemini means eight or eighth. And it comes from the first verse that says, Now it came about on the eighth day that Moses called Aaron and his sons and the elders of Israel. The, the, the almost immediate question that we need to ask is, why? What, why? What's this eighth day after what? And why has he called it? What has just taken place back in chapter um, 8 was the ordination of the altar and the tabernacle. They had gone through this procedure of dedicating the altar and the priesthood. This is now on the eighth day. This is the first day in which the temple, the tabernacle is, is dedicated, that the priests are now ordained. We are now functioning for the first day. All the preparation has been completed. We are now operating the tabernacle with the Levitical priesthood, Aaron as high priest. This is the first day of it. It's referred to as the eighth day. By the way, thematically in the Bible, if you do studies on number, number thematics, eight is the number that's consistently used throughout Scripture, meaning new beginnings. And this portion is, is titled on that. This is a new beginning that's taking place here. And so on the eighth day, we're now beginning something new. Verse 2, And he said to Aaron, Take for yourself a calf, a bull, a sin offering, a ram for a burnt offering, both without defect, and offer them before the Lord. Then to the sons of Israel you shall speak, saying, Take a male goat for your sin offering, and a calf and a lamb, both one year old without defect, for a burnt offering, and an ox and a ram for peace offerings, to sacrifice before the Lord, a grain offering mixed with oil, for today the Lord shall appear to you. This was a very, very special day. Up to this point, they had been following the instructions of the Lord, assembling the materials, crafting the different furnishings, placing them together, building the tabernacle together, getting the priesthood ready to go, ordaining and dedicating all of the tabernacle, ordaining and dedicating the priesthood, first day that we're really operational and God has something He wants to do. God now wants to do something. And what is He going to do? As we read a little bit further, He's going to send fire down from heaven and He's going to light the altar. The first fire on the altar for these sacrifices will come from God. Not them. The priests aren't going to light the fire to the altar. They're just preparing the sacrifices and getting ready to put them on there. God's going to put the fire on the altar. A very specific event. In fact, it goes on to say, not only did he said he was going to appear uh, before them, but as we read here further, it will tell us that it specifically happened. In fact, if you look down at verse 24, 
of chapter 9, it says, Then fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the portions of fat on the altar. When all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. Um, do you remember the story of Elijah? Remember that story when he was up there on Mount Carmel and it was challenging the prophets of Baal? And the challenge was that you guys build an altar and you call on Baal to, to light the altar and I'll build an altar and I'll call on God to light the altar. Elijah got the idea for this challenge based on this Torah portion. You know, God had done that before. He had sent fire from heaven and lit up the altar. Do you remember how specifically they were out there cutting themselves and whipping themselves and the prophets of Baal and they just could not get fire to come from heaven and, and light up that, that altar? And then when it was Elijah's turn, then he called on that they had to build a, a, a kind of like a moat around it. They had to fill it with water. They had to soak the wood with water. And then they poured water on top of all the sacrifices. You know, water is the opposite of fire. And they drenched everything on it. Then he called upon God to light up the altar. And you know the rest of the story. God did send fire and consumed everything. All of the altar, all the sacrifices left it with a hole in the ground. There was nothing left. Um, and that was the great test between Elijah and the prophets of Baal. Well, that story originates, the idea of fire from heaven originates from this, where this is how God revealed himself. Now, it's kind of interesting here because, you know, God had already previously revealed himself through the cloud by day and pillar of fire by night. He had revealed himself by hearing the voice of God from Mount Sinai. But this is now the tabernacle's been built, and fire comes from heaven and lights the altar. Those are the three great manifestations that God made to that generation of the children of Israel. We don't hear a lot about that fire from heaven coming down on the altar. In other words, if, you're, if you hear anybody kind of reviewing all of that history, you don't hear that very often about the fire that came down and consumed the altar. And part of the reason I think for that is there's a diminishment that exists today about the subject of the book of Leviticus and about altars and about sacrifices. In fact, there's a lot of Christians that when they hear about messianic things, about turning back to the law, one of the first twinges they have in their heart is, you mean sacrifices? You mean that altar stuff, priests, you mean sacrifices? We're not, we're not going back to sacrifices, are we? And of course, you've heard, all heard the argument, well, wasn't uh, Jesus the final sacrifice? We, we, we don't do that anymore. And of course, that's a, an, a huge error. Let me go ahead and quickly answer that. These are sacrifices brought by men. The sacrifice of Yeshua is the sacrifice brought by God. And yes, Yeshua is the final sacrifice that comes from God. But we still have these sacrifices that we bring. We still bring gifts to the Lord. We still observe the feasts and the holidays. We still do these things that was the public worship of God. We still do it. I could um, 
pose the following question to my um, church brethren. How come every week you come in and you keep taking communion and you keep preaching and you keep singing songs? You know, since Yeshua is the final force, why don't we do that once and it's done? No, the reason why we don't do it once is because we want the reminder. We're, we're refreshing ourselves all constantly with that process. We want to stay in that, that mode. Well, that's what temple worship is all about. We want to be in that mode. That's the reason why God will specify a daily sacrifice. Sacrifices, you know, for the holidays and, requ and requires us each year to keep the holidays. Those are all the reminders, you know, and it's a constant teach. And besides that, you're not the only person that's going to be in the world. There's other people coming into the world, other generations being grown up. We're supposed to be teaching our children about these things. So there's a constant need to teach people about these things. And it's not just about you. And oh, by the way, even though we say that Yeshua is the final sacrifice, his sacrifice is still working for the next generation and the generation after that and the generation after that one. It's still in effect. And these things that God has established are still in effect. The lessons and the principles are still with us. So this is a pretty significant event in terms of our faith. That God is the first one who provided the fire to take out all of those sacrifices and gifts that we bring. When we bring them to the Lord, the Lord is the one who takes care of them. We don't put a sacrifice on the altar and then pull it off. Now, the work of the priests, they do some of that. But you and I, when we bring a gift, we don't take it back off the altar. It's given completely to the Lord. He takes care of it from there. And the truth of the matter is, the Lord is the one that brought the Lamb of God. He put it up there for us, and we don't take it off. He's, and He doesn't take it off. He doesn't take it off either. It's always there for us. And we have these recurring instructions that tries to tell us how faithful God is to us, how He keeps covenant. He shows mercy and he does what he says he was going to do. And there is no conditions that you can specify, uh, including, well, the Messiah came, so that's done away with. That is not a condition that is in Scripture, and God doesn't accept that condition. That might be what men are trying to argue, but it's not true, and it doesn't work that way. It's according to God's rules. That's how things really work. So the whole idea was that he came down. Now, something incredible happens on this day when God brings his fire down. It's explained to us in chapter 10. Now, Nadav and Avihu, the sons of Aaron, who are priests, by the way, took their respective fire pans and after putting fire in them, placed incense on them and offered strange fire before the Lord, which had not they had not commanded them. A fire pan is that thing you carry coals with. And every campsite had one of those, every family had one. And they took their fire pan and they got some coals of fire probably from their own campfire. 
We don't know for sure, but it wasn't from the altar. It was from another source. And they put some incense and so make a sweet fragrance. They thought they would go and offer a sweet fragrance before the Lord. And so they approached the tent of meeting with this. And literally the understanding is the fire that God had put down on the altar, that fire came off the altar and hit them. And the best way I can describe to you the commentary that's on this is it wasn't like yellow fire. It was blue, hot, lightning fire of extreme heat. And it killed them instantly. Dropped them right there, dead. Here is Aaron and Moses and his two other sons. And he watches his two oldest sons approach the altar, and God zaps them. I mean, you know, put yourself in, the, in that scene for a moment. How, how would you have reacted to that? Well, there would have been, you would have been stunned. You certainly would have been fearful. You certainly would have had this, what's going to happen next kind of sense about it. Not understanding what happened, why did it happen, you know, what's going on, how, you know. So one of the natural questions for us is, why did that happen? And there's got to be something more that they were presumptive and bringing fire and doing a religious service, adding to what the Lord had specified through Moses. There's got to be something more than that, and there is, as we'll find out here very shortly. Verse 2, and fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, it is what the Lord spoke, saying, by those who come near me, I will be treated as holy, and before my people, I will be honored. So the issue is they weren't holy. There was something they were doing that they were unholy. And he said, I'm not going to tolerate unholiness in my presence. By the way, that's the reason why you and I cannot approach God face to face. He's holy and you're not. And unholiness cannot exist in his presence. You'd get zapped just like Nadav and Avihu. God is being very careful and very merciful to us. That's the concept behind the veil. He shields us, he protects us, look, because he knows his very presence could be harmful to us. And he doesn't want to harm us. So he set up safeguards and protections for us and so forth. But that doesn't mean that we don't have the goal to want to be holy or that we shouldn't be holy. It's that this is the state of affairs. And this is what was taking place that day. The fact of the matter is the priesthood were unholy. Even though they'd gone through the dedication, even though they were symbolizing the holiness and so forth, when Nadav and Avihu decided to do what they did, they moved into the realm of they were unholy. We're going to see some more reasons for that as it comes up. Verse 4, And Moses called also to Mishael and Eliphon, the sons of Aaron's uncle Uziel, and said to them, Come forward, carry your relatives away from the front of the sanctuary to the outside of the camp. So they came forward and carried them still in their tunics to the outside of the camp, as Moses had said. Then Moses said to Aaron and his sons Eleazar and Ithamar, 
Do not uncover your heads, nor tear your clothes, so that you may not die, and that he may not become weariful, uh, wrathful against all of the congregation. But your kinsmen, the whole house of Israel, shall bewail uh, the burning which the Lord has brought about. You shall not even go out from the doorway of the tent of meeting, lest you die. For the Lord's anointing oil is upon you, so they did according to the word of Moses. Moses gave the instruction to Aaron and his two other sons, freeze. Don't do anything. Don't show any expression of grief. Don't tear your garments. Don't leave. Stay right where you're at and don't move because if you move and you do anything, not only will it bring about your death, God's wrath will be upon all of the people. Wow. Think about that. Um, you know, I wonder, does God use that same kind of just system when a leader of a nation or a people misbehaves? A leader of a congregation or the leader of a nation, if they misbehave against the Lord, how does God carry out his punishment? Well, according to Moses, not only can he deal with the person, the, the leader, but he can also carry out that punishment to the entire group. I've seen many Messianic congregations where the leader misbehaved. And I've seen them fall under judgment because of it. And I've also seen their entire flock like explode and go to every wind and separate. Uh, uh, leaders' sins are grievous. They, they carry collateral damage. The leader of our nation, the President of the United States, the congressional leaders, if they misbehave before the Lord, they make judgments and decisions against the Lord, we all pay the price. Our whole nation pays the price. You remember the instruction that's given to us if you're traveling along through the land and you find a dead person along the way? How you're supposed to go to the elders of the nearest village or town and they have to come out and they have to make confession before God. We didn't have anything to do with this. Otherwise, it is assumed that that community that's nearest that death, that person that was near that community, that there's a murder in amongst them and, and that there's going to be consequences. You know, God doesn't just see us as a whole bunch of individuals. He sees us as a corporate group of people. He sees us as generations of men. He sees us as families. Individuals, yes. Families, yes. Communities, yes. Nations, yes. And His judgments upon us fall upon all of those, that whole spectrum. Moses is specifically saying, Aaron, <clears throat> don't move. Don't incur the wrath of God upon yourself or upon all of the nation. You've got you've to stay right where you're at. Because what had taken place was God's wrath had been revealed against his sons for their presumption 
and uh, for the fact that they were in an unholy status. So we go a little bit further, verse 8, and all of a sudden we get another clue. Why in the world did Nadav and Avihu get the idea, well, let's do this? You know, it is very clear that their judgment was impaired. That was not a good idea. Why did they do that? It was stupid. It was dumb. Why, why didn't they just follow the instruction of their father, follow the instruction of Moses, what the Lord had said? Why, why did they step out on their own? Well, the answer is given to us in verse 9. Do not drink wine or strong drink, neither you or your sons with you, when you come into the tent of meeting, so that you may not die. It is a perpetual statute throughout your generations. They had been consuming wine, apparently, or strong drink. They were impaired. They were intoxicated. They were drunk. You want to come before the Lord and, and honor the Lord drunk? Would that fall into the category of being unholy? Yeah. Not only would that be presumptive, that would be terribly unholy to do that before the Lord. We're talking about leaders and their behavior. We're not talking about the, the drunken man who came to repent, who's laying his sins before the Lord and begging for forgiveness. We're talking about a leader who's trying to do the work of the ministry and he decides that he's going to mix some spirits here, some alcoholic spirits, with the Holy Spirit of the Lord. And the Lord, it's like mixing their fire with the Lord's fire and that's not going to work. The Lord's fire will prevail. As a result, that's a pretty strong statement right there. Let me tell you, in my understanding of the Torah, I have taken this to heart. I really have. When I go to teach, on the day that I teach, the only thing that approaches any kind of alcoholic beverage is that drink of Sabbath wine that I have. And I don't drink more than what's in that cup. That's it. And I certainly don't warm up, you know, before I come to teach. In fact, I have specifically in certain evenings had the opportunity to go and teach in the evenings, had a nice dinner, was offered alcoholic beverages for the dinner, cocktails, wine. I, I, I enjoy those as much as anybody does. No. If I'm going to go teach, I'm not mixing any of those spirits with what the Lord wants to do. And most men that I know, in fact, I don't know of any that's an exception to this. Most spiritual men that I know, they don't mix these things. And there's the instruction for it. By the way, do you think the Torah is for all people on this one? Yeah. If you're planning on going to worship the Lord, don't go drunk. Don't be unholy, because it's considered to be unholy before the Lord. And he's not going to tolerate it. Now, why was it so important for the priest to make this almost an absolute rule? Because they have to have the skills to make distinctions. They have to have the discernment 
to make clear judgments about certain things of the Lord. In fact, let me read for you a little bit further. Verse 10, And so as to make distinction between the holy and the profane, between the unclean and the clean. You also have to make a very clear distinction between sober and drunk. That's the, that's the one that we always hear about, you know, DWIs and so forth. The cops do the field sobriety test and they take the blood test and the breath test and all that. They're trying to make a distinction. Are you sober or are you drunk? The, the law needs to make that distinction because it's a different issue. Well, before the Lord, there is a very clear distinction between the holy and the profane. And you must know what that distinction is. There must be a very clear distinction between the clean and the unclean. You have to make that distinction. Now, when it comes to the holy and unclean, that's what Leviticus is going to be teaching us about. He's going to be teaching, I'm holy, so you're supposed to be holy. And in fact, in the very next chapter, we're going to talk about clean and unclean foods. And this is the instruction, so that the priests can make the distinction for the brethren what is clean and what is unclean. And you can't make those judgments and those distinctions if you're drunk. You must be sober when you do the work of the ministry. You must have all of your wits about you, take into account all the Lord's instructions, look at the situation, and render a proper judgment uh, for it. Um, let me get into that just a little bit here. Um, what transpired at that particular event, the death of Nadav and Avihu, there was a particular sacrifice. In fact, we believe it was the Rosh Hodesh sacrifice, the new moon sacrifice. It was the first of the month. We believe it was the month of Nisan, the first day of Nisan. Passover will be following 14 days after this. This is the head of months that the tabernacle had been created over that year, that it was ordained, and they began the daily sacrifice on the first of Nisan. As the Lord had said, this will be the head of months for you. And it was Rosh Hodesh, and the new moon has a specific ceremony, and there's this particular sacrifice that they eat. It's a goat sacrifice. And when Nadav and Avihu died, Aaron did not eat of it. He was supposed to, but he didn't. And there's a little bit of a, a controversy between Moses and Aaron over this. In fact, let me read to, to you uh, verse 18, or let me, let me do verse 17. Why did you not eat the sin offering of the holy place? For it is most holy, and he gave it to you to bear away the guilt of the congregation, to make atonement for them before the Lord. Behold, since his blood had not been brought inside into the sanctuary, you should certainly have eaten it in the sanctuary just as I commanded. But Aaron spoke to Moses, Behold, this very day they presented their sin offering and their burnt offering before the Lord, when things like this happened to me, if I had eaten at the sin offering uh, today, would it have been good in the sight of the Lord? You know what Aaron is actually saying? He says, 
God took my two sons as the offering. Would it have been appropriate after he already take the offering that I'd sit down and eat this animal offering? And suddenly Moses said, that makes sense. God already took care of the situation. We don't, we don't need to have that offering now for it. It's a very interesting little moment there between Moses and Aaron and how this unfolds. Now, as I said to you before, one of the jobs of the priest is to make a distinction between holy and unholy, but they also are to make a distinction between clean and unclean. And before I get into the subject of this, of this here, uh, I need to explain something to a lot of my Christian brethren. For something to be defined by God as food, it has to be clean to begin with. But just because it's clean doesn't necessarily it's food unless you prepare it as food. There is no instance in which you can take an unclean animal and turn it into food. That is, there's no instance for that. If it's unclean, it's immediately dismissed as a possible candidate for food. If it's a clean item, it is possible that it could be made into food, but it's going to have to go through a transition. It's going to have to be made fit and proper, and that's what kosher means. It has to be koshered. Now, what am I talking about? It means, let's take, um, I've got me a beef cow. It's standing there on the hoof, chewing away on his grass, and it's a clean animal. And we say, hey, I want a barbecue here. I've got to transition that animal from sitting there on all four legs eating grass to where it can get on my barbecue. So I'm going to have to kosher it. So what's that mean? That means that I have to slay the animal mercifully. That means I have to kill him instantly. And the preferred method that was used among the Asians was they would cut the throat. And in so doing, the blood drains out of the brain, he immediately loses consciousness and all sense of anything, and the heart continues to pump and vacates the blood out of the animal, which, by the way, the koshering process requires the blood has to be removed. The blood has to be returned to the earth. We get to eat the flesh of the animal for its food source, but we do not get to eat the blood of the animal, which is the life of the animal. We must respect the life of the animal and give that back to the earth, give that back to the Lord. And if you butcher it in such a way that the blood is entrapped in the animal, it has not been made fit and proper. Now, in the typical koshering process, they usually will slay the animal, and then the animal will actually be hung and, you know, head down so that the rest of the blood can drain out of the animal the, through gravity as well as what may have vacated because of the beating heart before it died. And when they butcher the meat, um, a typical um, uh, Jewish way of koshering meat is they wash it. I should say wash it. I'm from Kansas, so I say wash. Wash it. And if you ever go to the store and you buy kosher salt, you're thinking, oh, they got this special salt for Jews. Is it, they got to have kosher salt. No. 
That's the salt you use to kosher foods with. And it's a high coarse salt. And what you do is you take that big steak and you wash it and then you sprinkle it with a lot of salt and you let it sit. The salt will draw out any of the remaining blood that's in the tissue of the beef. And after a while, you wash the salt off and you wash away all the toxins and contaminants and all the other things. And now you have a clean piece of meat ready to be food and now it's ready to go on your barbecue. Now there are different levels of how people do this. For the most part here in the United States, the beef that we get that you buy from the grocery store, it's already been washed and they don't, they don't sell dirty beef. I mean, they, that wouldn't be very good marketing. And the blood has been vacated and so forth. But you can, if you want, get the kosher salt out, and you can kosher it yourself and wash it yourself if you want. <coughs> Some, a lot, don't necessarily do that because we believe that what has already been done uh, at the packing house and preparing for it, it's made it ready to be food. The... Uh, I will tell you this, that if you kosher a good beef steak yourself with the salt and so forth, some of the salt will leak into the meat and it will actually enhance the flavor of the meat. It'll actually give more taste to the meat uh, if you can handle that salt taste in it. It's not too salty, it just kind of makes it more flavorful. In any case, that is then what we would call food. So let's go through the list here. Certain things that you cannot you, that are not clean, and you can't even begin to do the kosher process. For example, pig, swine's flesh, unclean. There's no way to kosher it. There's no way you can wash it, get it right. Um, you can't kosher cockroaches. Can't kosher shrimp or lobster or other shellfish, crustaceans. And there's a big list here. It's usually animals of prey. You can't kosher a lion or a camel or a horse. Now we all have heard various stories, survival stories, where people have eaten unclean things, um, you know, to survive and to live. But as a general rule, this is, this is well, also well known. If you continue to consume unclean foods, it will affect your health. You will get the diseases the Egyptians had. You will have problems in your life. And today in modern nutrition, one of the things that is well understood for those who pay attention to what you eat and what it contains is that medicine actually is some of the food you eat. Certain foods you eat can actually help you from a medicine standpoint for your body, and certain foods are bad for you, they are not good for you, and particularly artificial things made by man to enhance the flavor of food or the sellability of food generally does not work in your favor. The more natural, organic that you can have is more in line with what the Lord was talking about when he talked about this list. So you have to take that into account as well as. Now, am I saying if you don't eat organic, 
<clears throat> you're sinning, that you're violating. No, I'm not saying that. The list here specifically specifies clean and unclean. And that's all the Torah needs to say. Now, if you want to, on your own, um, take it a little bit further to be a little bit more strict on your diet for your health and so forth, that's on you and that's up to you as to whether or not you want to do it. I'm diabetic. I have to stay away from sugar. I, me and sugar just don't get along well. And I'm paying the price for having too much sugar in the past. So I need to abstain from sugar, even though it's a clean food. And I definitely stay away from pork. But there's other foods that people are now becoming sensitive to the gluten that's in wheat and nightshades and other foodstuffs. Well, do what you need to do for your health. But the one thing that we don't want to do is violate the commandment. The commandments are clear. Uh, I got to tell you a funny story here. I, I have, uh, have some friends of mine, Baptist friends, and we get together at breakfast once a week. And, um, the, uh, and they're good Baptist brother, and they, they love me, and they know I'm messianic and so forth. And they like to eat their pork sausage and pork bacon, you know, at breakfast. And I eat the turkey bacon and my omelets and other things. Here in a recent uh, fellowship that we had together, these guys are complaining about the problems of the church having to deal with homosexuals coming in and, and expecting to be hired uh, for employment with the church and other functions. And of course, the church doesn't want to hire any homosexuals and uh, to be a part of it. And there's a law coming out that may force churches to have to do that in the future. So, they're, so they are specifically, specifically, uh, they were discussing that. And one of them made something of a comment like, boy, I wish it was clear in the scripture so we could do this. And I said, it is clear in the scripture. And they said, what? I said, it's in the New Testament. So really, what, where in the New Testament? And I said, right there in Acts chapter 15, when the Gentiles started coming into the faith, there was this meeting with James and Paul and Peter. It was called the First Council of Jerusalem. And they were deciding what are the essentials for Gentiles to be coming in and joining the fellowship. And they listed three essentials that have to be done. If those three things are not done, they can't come in and join the fellowship. And I said, one of the first ones right off the bat was idolatry. If you don't believe in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Israel, then you don't have any business being here. You believe in another God, go somewhere else. We're here for the God of Israel. Number one, idolatry. We're not going to tolerate idolatry. You're not coming in here and, and believing in some other God too. Number two, you can't be a pervert. You can't be an adulterer. You can't be... Uh, promiscuous, you cannot be a homosexual, a lesbian, you can't be a pedophile, you can't um, be, commit bestiality with animals, you cannot do any of that perverted stuff. Incest, none of it, none of it is tolerated. You cannot be here. And I said, there's the answer for you. There in the New Testament, it specifically says this is essential. Should be no question on the part of a church as to whether or not you can permit a homosexual in. There it is, in the New Testament, letter to the Gentiles. This is the instruction that was given to all of you. 
And I said, and also it says you're not supposed to eat the unclean. That's when one of the guys said, you mean we're not supposed to eat pork? I said, exactly. I said, it's as grievous as idolatry and being a homosexual before the Lord to be in the congregation and eat the unclean. Boy, that was a very sobering, quiet moment there with my Baptist brethren. But they heard what the instruction was. And I didn't do it in hate. I love these guys and they know it. But I'm not afraid to share the truth with them. It's up to them as to what they do with it. Now, I can tell you what they're probably not going to do with it. They're probably not going to process it very well. Most guys I've run into, when you point that out to them, they say, well, I love my bacon, and i got to have my bacon. Okay. Let it be recorded that your love of bacon was greater than your love of the commandments of the Lord. You go ahead and explain that to the Lord. And these are the leading men of the congregation. And because they won't take a stand on that, congregation is also going to suffer the effects. If they were to take a stand on it, they could turn the whole congregation as well. But instead, all of them are going to be viewed on the same issue by the Lord. You know, I have no idea, honestly, how the world, you, me, everybody in the world, even, even amongst the brethren, how we're going to face the Lord. We are truly undone before Him. We are in trouble. The only hope that we have is that Yeshua's sacrifice, the Lamb of God's sacrifice, somehow, some way, covers these sins and somehow helps us and releases us from the penalties of it. That's what we teach, that's what we believe, and that's what we hope for. So as you go through chapter 11 and you read all the details of it, there's some natural questions that come up. Um, and as a general rule of thumb, some of, these, some of these instructions are that if it's a predator and it eats dead things, it's usually not clean. Um, now, the exception to that is a chicken. It goes around eating all kinds of stuff. And, and uh, this is a joke now. Maybe, but maybe that's the reason why God called chickens foul. I don't know. You know, they uh, put a little humor to this. Okay. Um, for in my early years uh, as a messianic teacher, when I bring up the subject of kosher and the clean and unclean, I remember very distinctly a conversation with uh, this one Baptist fellow. I was associated with a lot of Baptists. He said, so Monty, are you trying to say that if I don't eat uh, kosher, that I'm not going to heaven? You see, Baptists always revert every instruction to salvation. They always revert. You know, if you sin and don't do what the Lord says, are you losing your salvation? That, that's what they're always care, scared about. And I said, no, it doesn't have anything to do with that. This is not about salvation. And I said, well, what are you saying? And I said, all I'm saying to you is if, if you want to eat the unclean, it doesn't prevent you from going to heaven. It probably helps you get there faster. 
you know, because it'll probably kill you. Um, and that's pretty much how we leave it. Here's how the Lord concludes this whole portion on this. He says in verse 43 of chapter 11, Do not render yourselves detestable through any of the swarming things that swarm, and you shall not make yourselves unclean with them so that you become unclean. For I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. And you should not make yourselves unclean with any of the swarming things that swarm on the earth. For I am the Lord who brought you up from the land of Egypt to be your God. Thus you should be holy, for I am holy. This is the law regarding the animal and the bird and every living thing that moves in the waters and everything that swarms on the earth to make a distinction between the unclean and clean and between edible creature and the creature which is not to be eaten. Every one of us, not only the priesthood, every one of us are supposed to be learning the difference between right and wrong, the difference between holy and profane, the difference between clean and unclean, just like we know there's a difference between sober and drunk. Those are issues of life, and we need to know those things. We need to have the knowledge and the wisdom and the skill for all of those things. All right, well, that's our Torah portion for this week. Shabbat shalom to all of you, and we'll continue our study of why the Torah is for all people next week. Shalom. Thank you for joining us. This broadcast has been made possible by the Lord and by the generous donations of brethren like you. If you would like to give a donation to help keep this broadcast on the air, please visit llgive.com. Thank you and shalom.